Well, praise God for that. <laughs> praise God for what uh, he is doing in Joseph's life. And, and I just want to uh, share, uh, he and uh, Josiah Wyatt uh, show up here uh, just about every single Sunday morning uh, at seven o'clock in the morning uh, and serve on our tech team uh, for our traditional service before coming to this service and going to their student life group. And what an encouragement that is uh, to me. And uh, not only them, but uh, we have several of our students in our student ministry uh, who are serving uh, in children's ministry, often during the 9.30 hour or helping out in other ways. And I just wanna tell you students, you are not the future of the church, you are the church. And God is using you in a great way, and we love you, and we're so excited uh, just to be a small part of how he's gonna use you, not only now, uh, but in the days to come. Uh, and, and I'm just so excited for God, how, how God's working in our church as we've shared and celebrated. And I wanna invite you, if you're a part of our church, to, to come and join us uh, two weeks from today on what we're calling Vision Day in the morning. Uh, we're gonna be walking through what our vision is as a church, why we believe what we believe, uh, and do what we do. And then Sunday night, uh, that Sunday night, we're gonna be celebrating how God has worked, more ways that God has worked in the last year. Um, talk about how we're trending towards our, our 10-year goals and talk about things we believe the Lord is putting before us as we move forward. And if you're here today uh, and it's your first time with us, you're a guest, or maybe you're watching online for the first time, let me just say to you that we are grateful that you're here and we would love for you to know how you can be a part of this church family uh, and you can text the word connect uh, to the number that is on the screen and one of our team members will follow up with you this week and, and answer any questions you have and help you learn how you can uh, get involved in the life of our church or uh, you can stop by one of the welcome tables on your way out and the team there would be happy to get you more information. All right. Well, as we think about growing as a church, as we think about God continuing to use us to accomplish the things that we wanna do, what we wanna see happen is we wanna see more people included. We wanna see more people included, and that means people who come from different backgrounds, different spiritual backgrounds, if any backgrounds. And there's this tension that exists for a believer and for a church when they wanna grow, they wanna include more people, but they also know there's truth. There's what we call doctrine. There's things we believe, and those are kind of exclusive because they say, hey, if you don't believe this, you're not right. You know, if you don't believe this, then we're not really together on what we believe life is about. And so this is a tension for any group of believers, any person to wrestle with. I wanna use an example of how we wrestle with this tension. So almost three years ago, um, for those of you who've been a part of our church, you're probably painfully aware of this. Uh, for those of you who are new, you might not be aware of this, but we decided as, as a church body to uh, move from being called First Baptist Church of Niceville uh, to be call, being called Church on Bayshore in the community and still honoring that we are the First Baptist Church. We were here first, uh, that we're First Baptist Church. Uh, and so we say First Baptist on, um, you know, our, our stuff on campus. And there were really two driving, I mean, there were a lot of opinions, but there were two ones that I really cared about. Um, and they were, on one hand, well, if we stop labeling ourselves as Baptists, and like many other churches have done, they've stopped labeling themselves, we're like the fifth church in town to do that, you know, then people don't really know what we are. And, and, and I heard a preacher say one time, labels are good because you wanna know when you're grabbing a can if it's dog food or green beans. 
my kids would actually, my preschool kids would probably prefer the dog food over the green beans, actually. But um, we, and, and, and I agree. I think that's a valid point. Like, we want to know, like, what is it that we stand for? What is it that we believe? Who are we? And then on the other hand, there's this true statement that says, hey, but that excludes people. Because a lot of people think when you're called Baptist, when you're called whatever it might be, that they didn't grow up that, so they're not really invited. They're not welcome. And, and, I, and I'll just sidebar say, and the, the other thing is what people who grew up Baptist traditionally think of when they think of Baptist is not what the average person thinks of. Like what you think of that makes a Baptist church great isn't what the typical person when they hear the word Baptist thinks of. And so that, that's a whole other issue. But my point in bringing this up is both of those points were very valid, and things that I wrestle with as we made that decision. Now, I want to take this a step further. One of our desires as a church is to be kingdom-focused, right? We don't want to just grow a church. We want to, really? You don't know this? We want to what? Oh, good job. 10% of you got it. I'm so, so happy. So we want to build the kingdom. And so as we do that, we're working together with other churches, who were praying for other churches, who, hey, we don't agree with them on everything. And really, if, you, if you're familiar with Southern Baptist life, there's a lot of division, even amongst these churches that choose to cooperate together about some, you know, kind of significant issues on uh, different matters. And so, do we still cooperate together? I say all this because our text today, Mark chapter 9, verse 38 through 41, deals with this tension. Now, I keep using the word tension because it is a tension. Everything I'm gonna say today is not necessarily black and white on how to apply it. And if you know me, you know I like things to be pretty matter of fact and black and white. But it's not. And so I'm gonna do my best to explain what's going on and what Jesus says and the implications for us. I appreciate Dwayne praying for me because Holy Spirit I need your help this morning. Mark chapter nine, verse 38 through 41. It says, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. If you read this passage without considering the immediate context or the context of all of scripture, then your mind will be likely to wander into some type of interpretation that is based on your biases. If you've had a bad experience with a faith leader, then you are going to be more inclined to use this as fuel to write someone off who's drawn religious lines. If you have someone who you love who has wandered from the church, you might use this to say, we need to accept everyone's beliefs. If you lean towards a faith that is works-based, then this might add fuel to the fire to say, no, we have to do these things and we have to do it this way or we're in error. 
But we always need to consider the context to develop our understanding of a verse we read or of verses that we are reading. And the context could amplify, it could clarify, or it could change the understanding of what we have read. So let's first consider the immediate context of Mark chapter 9, verse 38 through 41. Now we've recently learned of the inability of the disciples to cast out a demon without Jesus present. And then, shortly after that, Jesus redirects the argument of the disciples about who is the greatest. So, going into what we're reading in Mark chapter 9, verse 8 through 31, we have the disciples who are coming off of a time of seeing their inability, even though they are Jesus' inner circle to cast out a demon. Something they now witness this other dude, not in their circle, doing. When the Greek is used in this text, casting out, it means that this man succeeded in casting out the demon. Also, the disciples have clearly been thinking about their status in heaven, particularly as it relates in comparison to one another certainly implying that they must have considered themselves to have more significant positions in the kingdom of God than people who are not in the inner circle. So this is the backdrop for the response that Jesus gives. But we must also consider the greater context of Scripture. You see, we know enough about Jesus to conclude that this man was doing this with the right motivation Or Jesus would not have said, let him continue. Jesus would not say, oh, he's teaching people that it's Satan power that heals? Let him keep on keeping on. Jesus would not have said, oh, he's trying to get people to believe something other than the scriptures that I affirm? That's cool. Jesus would not have said, oh, he's leading people to follow him and give him money and give him glory and devote their lives to him? Good for him. And we should also consider the direct words of Jesus by Matthew, that Matthew records, after Jesus is accused of being Satan by the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30 through 32. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So if you read these two statements, for the one who is not against us is for us, and whoever is not with me is against me, without really slowing down to understand what is being said, they almost seem at odds with each other. But in fact, they are not. Consider the audience. In one, we have a dialogue with the the disciples, with the Pharisees present, where the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of being from Satan. On the other one, we have the disciples And Jesus is teaching to the disciples when the disciples thought this man who was casting out a demon wasn't doing something he should be doing. Consider the situation. 
in both counts. And consider the actual words that are used. In Mark, they say we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And Jesus says for the one who is against us is for us. In Matthew, Jesus says whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. You see, Jesus does have a problem with people who are against him and who are thus against God and his will since he and the Father are one, John 10, 30. So the point that I'm trying to get you to see is that Jesus is not saying that anyone who does anything that resembles something of some sort of Christianity is doing the right thing. That's not what he's saying. What Jesus is doing here is he is rebuking the disciples not for doctrinal integrity, but for dogmatic intentions. So now that we have considered the immediate context and the entire context of Jesus' teaching, let's look a little closer at these verses and make application. Are you with me? Are you good? Because in the first service, they look very glossed over. And one of the men who always encourages me with something here for the sermon came up and said, I appreciate that you have a sense of humor. And I thought, does that mean he didn't get what I was saying, but he, he just likes me? Um, so, Lord, help me. Mark 9, 38. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. They don't say, we told him to stop because he was doing something contradictory to what you taught us. They do not say, we told him to stop because he was trying to bring glory to himself instead of you. They do not say, we tried to get him to stop because he was taking advantage of people. They say, we tried to get him to stop because he wasn't following us. He wasn't in our group. And to that, Jesus quotes a common proverb in their day, and says the one who is not against us is for us, which would convey to them he may not be walking with us, but he is for the same cause. See, Jesus' challenge is with the intention of the disciples. And I leaned heavily on Alistair Begg, a pastor, uh, for his articulation of some of these things, and something he said is, being protective is acceptable. Being restrictive is unacceptable. Being protective is acceptable. Being restrictive is unacceptable. I think this quote really gets at not only attention for the disciples who were physically walking with Jesus, but it gets at the heart of attention for the disciples who have walked with Jesus ever since. You see, there are typically two forces at work in the life of the church at large and in the church as it's locally expressed. One force is this spirit of deconstruction, of questioning, and of trying to include more people. So a group who say, let's look at how we've always done things. And maybe there's some problems with how we've always done things. And why do we do some of the things that we do? And I don't have a lot of answers for some of that. And how can we include more people into what we're doing? 
And there's also a spirit that's at work in the, the church at large and in any church that says, hey, what we have here is pretty good and has been good. There's good that's come of it. Let's guard that. Let's honor that and the people who've come before us. And we need to be careful and exclude people who might derail us from losing that. Now, I'm not saying that you are definitely on one of those two sides. Granted, you can dive fully into one of those two sides, and that's unhealthy. But what I'm saying here is that the disciples are leaning unhealthily on the guarding and protecting and excluding side. Jeffrey Grogan, a theology professor, says, here Jesus rebukes every form of entrenched denominationalism or sectarianism, every form of drawing boundary lines around our little group and our group, then becoming the key to understanding who Jesus is. Basically, Jesus is addressing this problem where people would say, unless you're franchised and endorsed by us, unless you've fulfilled our obligations and, and followed our plan and so on, then you can't possibly be doing the right thing and you should stop. Now, this is not an argument for non-denominationalism because sometimes non-denominational means non-biblical. It means... Hey, we don't really want to be tied to anything that holds us down from progressing towards what we want. And I would add to that, any attempt at being non-denominational, if you carry it to an extreme, will result in a denomination called non-denominational. Truly, that has become a thing where there are people who say, I will only attend a non-denominational church. That's my criteria, which means... You are a part of a non-denominational that says you cannot be called anything other than non-denominational because we're the only ones who have it right, which is just as arrogant as a denomination thinking they have it right. You see, Jesus is dealing with the drawing of lines based not on the teaching of Scripture, but the drawing of lines based on the personalities, preferences, and proximity of a certain group. You see, without a doubt, Christianity is diverse, in its backgrounds and thoughts and style. Christianity became the first religion to say we're not defined by a geographic region or by a cultural, but our faith is cross-cultural. It can be expressed in different ways in different cultures, and that holds true today. If you do a religion map, you will see Christianity across the whole globe, transcendent of cultures, and by and large, you'll see other faiths only having strongholds in certain regions. So how the Christian church is going to be expressed is going to look different in Niceville than it does in New York City and than it does in rural Africa and than it does in urban Asia. And yet, each group of believers who gathers together should be tethered to the historical teachings of Christianity and the scriptures affirmed by God's people and the early church and Christ. And so this is a tension for us to manage as a church, because you can, in your desire to include, go too far away from the scriptures. Now, in our circle, we typically think of that as being the problem. 
But the problem with the disciples and the problem with the church can be that we are also too closed off to what God is doing elsewhere because of what we are so familiar with. And for motivations of control, pride, security, barriers that God never intended to be put up can be put up. And this needs correction because it can hinder Jesus's mission. Alistair Begg says this, when churches start to raise unnecessary barriers and make them credos of faith, it is only a matter of time before the gospel loses its hold in their hearts and in their community. I'll read that again. When churches start to raise unnecessary barriers and make them credos of faith, it is only a matter of time before the gospel loses its hold in their hearts and in their community. Whenever we begin to say, in addition to the gospel, in addition to the scriptures, these are our banners we wave, we begin to move away from a focus on the gospel and who Christ is and onto other areas and create unnecessary barriers and become focused on things other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So listen, in this room, believers differ in different areas. I'm not talking about the church up the hill or the church even further up the hill that we prayed for this morning. I'm talking about us. In this room, we differ. We differ in theology, in views of God, and what is meant by certain things of God's character in the scriptures. We differ on Bibliology or Bibleology, we even differ on how you pronounce that. Um, and really, what should be interpreted literally, what contextually we should, you know, adapt. There's differing opinions. Christology, there's differing opinions in this room about some of the aspects of Jesus. Pneumatology, that's the spirit of God. There are differing aspects on the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer today in this room. Anthropology, human, the human condition, original sin, those kind of things. There's differing opinions in this room. Ecclesiologies, how, ecclesiology, how we should do church. Soteriology, how we're saved, when regeneration takes place, when, you know, whether or not we have to make a verbal profession, what a kid can understand, all those things. Eschatology, how the world's gonna end. Political ideology, and that's even getting beyond the Bible. And some of this, some of our differing opinions is, is maturity. Sometimes people just haven't matured in Christ. They're newer to the church, they haven't been discipled. So the reason they differ is because they're immature in the faith. But sometimes, and I hate this word, but maybe an issue is gray, or maybe there's some mystery to it, or some freedom in it. Sometimes, though, they're an error. The person is an error in, in believing what they believe. And this is a tension to manage. Because sometimes, when there's this disagreement, it means dialogue. It means we probably should talk about what you just taught or what you just said or what you understand about this. And, and, and sometimes we could just say, you know what? Let's just agree to disagree on that. It's not an essential matter of the faith. And people have debated this issue for thousands of years. It's okay to 
disagree on this and, and hope that you'll eventually agree with me. Um, sometimes it means disfellowship. There's some of you who you hold to a different view of, of some of the teachings of Scripture than we do. And the reality is there's other churches that believe what you believe. And it doesn't mean not love each other. It just means, hey, this is a pretty big deal to us based on Scripture. And so, you know, we probably are going to have a hard time really cooperating together on this. And, you know, there's churches in our town who you know, I am happy to part with, partner with for missions causes and people have come to me and said, hey, do you think we could do a joint Bible study with them? And I said, yeah, if we lead it and they listen to us teach because I'm not endorsing that teaching. I, I, look, I'm not saying they're not saved, but they're in error. I think they're going to heaven. I don't understand why they believe that because it's pretty plain to me, but you know what? We're still gonna partner with them to make sure the gospel goes forth because they believe in the gospel. But I will say that sometimes it means defend the faith. It means there are attacks from groups that begin to preach a different version of the gospel and salvation and, and God, incorporating other books into what they believe or, or just leaving the scriptures altogether. And so we have to defend the faith and, and be on guard about that. And, and I'm just telling you, this is a tension to wrestle with. I, I, I will say that what we have to be aware, though, is we have a sinful human tendency to be tribalistic. If you don't believe that, just go onto a elementary school playground and look at third grade girls. Well, that's kind of weird. I shouldn't have said that. That sounded creepy. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> Teachers, right? You know what I'm talking about. Okay, don't leave me hanging. All right, thank you. We're, we're, we have a tendency to see to say, these are my people. I'm accepted by these people. And those people are different than us. So they must be wrong and to become arrogant in that. We're just, that's our tendency. In fact, it creeps into the church. And it was creeping into the church like right away. In 1 Corinthians chapter one, Paul addresses this to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 12. I have a new dumbest thing I've said out of context, by the way, uh, after what I just said. Uh, 1 Corinthians Chapter one, verse 10 through 12, Paul says, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, always a woman that tells the pastor and her people, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. So here's what's going on. Tribalism. And they're saying, we like this particular aspect of Apollos' ministry and teaching. We like this particular thing about Paul. We like this particular thing about Peter. It fits our background. It fit, fits our personality. It fits what we're most comfortable with. And so we belong to them. And look, I get why denominations were formed and why we labeled ourselves, because at least there was a time in our country where it was like, hey, you need to know what you're walking into, and here's what we are. And I'm not against that. But if our pride is it being labeled a Baptist or being labeled part of John Wesley's tradition, or I just think Martin Luther, if he weren't resurrected from the grave, would roll over in it that people call themselves Lutherans, 
It's so silly. Again, I'm okay with labels in context, but if our pride is in that, if our identity is in that and not Christ, we have greatly gone astray. But at the same time, Paul says there are those who say, I follow Christ. Because they're saying, hey, we're the ones who follow Jesus. All these other people who have some differing ways of expressing their faith, they're not following Jesus. And it's arrogant and divisive to think that our people are the only ones who are following Christ. Because of our view of how we do church, because of our view of politics, or our view of maybe more serious issues, to think that those people who might even be in error in some way don't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when things are going well for a church, there becomes this tendency to believe, hey, look, we're the ones who got it right, and anyone in town who doesn't go to our church doesn't have it right. Because we have the best pastor. And I tell myself that in the mirror every morning when Christy walks in and says, you're wrong. <laughs> there is, but, but let me also say this. And you see this in, large, in larger growing churches, or, or maybe even ours. But there's also smaller churches that see the growth that's taking place in other churches and say, we're the ones who have it right. We're faithful. Anyone who's growing isn't faithful. Because this jealousy that creeps in, this competitive nature that is not of God and should not exist between the churches. When Jesus said, they will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another, I fully agree that he didn't just mean church on Bayshore. He means how we interact with other believers in this community because people whose lives are falling apart and who are running away from God don't know the difference by and large by a Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian or non-denominational. They know that something's missing and we know that the answer is Jesus Christ. And by the way that we treat one another because Christ has transformed us and caused us to be humble, it speaks more powerfully than anything we can pridefully say about our particular church and denomination. But since the beginning of time, people have been jealous when God uses other people. Look at Numbers, um, verse 11 through 24, or excuse me, Numbers chapter 11, verse 24 through 29, and we're probably one of five churches that are looking at Numbers this morning in America. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But then they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. His parent, the parents weren't very original. And the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. So they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, my Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. They say, Moses, this isn't the structure that we put in place. This isn't our people. And Moses says that all of God's people would prophesy, that all of God's people would have the spirit resting on them. So in our passage today, Jesus says in verse 39, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon afterward to speak evil of me. Jesus is saying if he's 
sincerely doing it for the Lord, he's going to show that he's sincerely doing it for the Lord. Because there is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. There's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. We live in a day where people try to soften who Jesus is because, there's, because they really don't like who Jesus was in the Bible. They redefine him. But the reality is there's no neutrality. He's either Lord. I mean, C.S. Lewis said he's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Either what he said is true and we should bow down our lives and surrender to him or he was just making stuff up or crazy. The Pharisees said, he who's not, a, I mean, the Pharisees said, hey, he must be from Satan. And Jesus said, hey, they're against us. Simon the magician came to the early church and said, I want some of the power of Jesus and used it for his own gain. And he ended up going away. In 1 John, it tells us that there were those who said they were of us, but they are no more because they didn't really want to follow Jesus. And the real revelation of someone's intention and motivation is humility and time. This is why it is so important the church is not defined by a bunch of people coming and sitting in rows, listening to one person talk, never interacting with the text and never talking about what it means for their life. And then going to a classroom, listening to one person talk and never having to say anything. If we don't have believers who are questioning us and the way we live and we're dialoguing with what our understanding of the word, we're never really able to decipher, does this person truly see Jesus as Lord? Because if, if we do, then we're gonna submit to him in ways that our life errs and ways our understanding errs. And so that correction reveals our humility, whether Jesus is really Lord, but over time also reveals where somebody was. Look, we want it to happen quickly. You know, we wanna be able to say, they're a Christian, they're not a Christian, they're a Christian, they're not a Christian. If I just point at you, that was not intentional. And it doesn't. It doesn't happen whether or not somebody is erring quickly. We see this in popular teachers. We see this in some church members as they start to get obsessed with a certain issue. We see this in churches and the drift towards, you know, progressive liberalism away from the Bible. And it just takes time. And I would just say, this is why we need to be careful to say, this is my group. And we need to always go back to the word of God and let it set the foundation, the guidelines for how we do church and be committed as a group of believers to saying, hey, we're sinners who are prone to err, prone to wander, and we need to always be tethered back to what does God's word say. And church, we've been in a great season and I think we're a great healthy church. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm a part of what we're doing, but we can't let our guard down. We can't let our guard down. Because the question isn't whether or not allegiance lies with uh, the group, but whether or not allegiance lies with Jesus. That's the question of our life. And we wanna be a part of a group of believers who say our allegiance lies with Jesus. It's about him. And, and just be aware that you can be in the group and your allegiance not lie to Jesus. Because Judas Iscariot was in the inner circle. And time revealed his motivation. And be aware that you can have a false sense of security, security by being a part of a group of people that talk about Jesus, but really your motivation is elsewhere. Jesus says in verse 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. He's saying if their motivation is Christ, they'll be rewarded, whether they cast out demons or they give a cup of water. And the motivation has to be on Christ. That's where our eyes have to be fixed 
in our personal lives. That's where our eyes have to be fixed as a church. There's tension. We protect, we guard, we question, we include, and we move forward with what God's calling us to do, realizing that he is faithful to us, and so our commitment is to be faithful to him. And, and I'll just be honest with you, especially when I was younger, but even still now, I struggle. I struggle with truly, you know, why people believe certain things they believe about the Bible, and yet they seem to love Jesus and, and believe the gospel. And, and I'm telling you, I think they're wrong. I joke around about other pastors who are friends. I'm like, we don't get into theological discussions because I would win. <laughs> and I don't get how people can go and, and, and believe some of the things they believe and neglect some of the things they believe. And, and, and I'm not part of some of those churches because of that. But I'll tell you, the older I get and the more I focus on Christ, whenever I'm amazed at what someone can believe or do and still be a Christian, I all of a sudden become more amazed that I can stand in the presence of Jesus of Nazarene, a sinner condemned unclean. And his grace for me is what is transforming the way I view everyone else. And I pray that's true for you today. Let's pray together. Lord, as I talk about some of the things I talked about this morning, and God, I know I didn't do the best job of articulating it, so I just pray, pray for your spirit in spite of me to work in our hearts. Um, I know that there are people who, a lot of these issues that I'm talking about this morning, they're really not even on the radar. What's on their radar is the fact their life is empty. And Lord, what I pray they hear, what I pray they hear, is that God, the primary issue in their life is that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And he came to be the Lord of our lives. And he is a Lord who is loving and wants what is best for us. And we know this because Jesus came and died for us on the cross. And Jesus has the ability to change our hearts and transform us and give us hope and give us purpose. And we know this because he rose from the grave. And so, Lord, I pray that they would just say, I don't know about a lot of these secondary and third issues, but I know that I need you. And then for Christians, Lord, may we always be tethered to the truth of the scripture. May we, may we be people of, of study and diligent of the word, but may we realize that that diligent study of the word leads us to be a people that says, hey, we're willing to let barriers down so that God can have a people for himself. And we know that he is with us as we do this because that's what he says. So Lord, help us to manage this tension as your people in the world living out your kingdom as it is on earth. I mean, as it is in heaven. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.